Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Back episode 14 of Beyond the Well. I'm really excited to have Mr. Johnny Crowder on. For those of you who do know, although it wasn't an actual like official episode of Beyond the Well, I was able to talk to this guy a couple years ago. We were just talking about that a second ago. I've seen him live in shows and like I said, homeboy's been real busy doing all kinds of different things. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Johnny. It's good to have you again. Thank you for having me. And my name is Johnny Crowder, obviously, and I am your best friend, whoever is listening. What a positive attitude. That's definitely something that I think we can all use. I mean, just to kind of get it out of the way, but how are things uh, holding up for you in Florida? I know this, uh, this, this year, a lot of us are calling it Armageddon, but th this year's been very interesting. Yeah, Florida is... <laughs> Florida has never really been good at like having our stuff together, you know? We're not really known for being uh, careful and composed and organized. So a lot of that is being reflected um, and amplified during this wacky year. But all things considered, um, I am pumped that our one week of fall is coming up here in January or February. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I think you can replace Florida with United States and it would probably be the same thing. And I don't think any of us uh, really handled this the, the best possible way. Bro, everyone, everyone likes to crap on Florida and New Jersey. And then when something like this happens, I think everyone's like, oh, we're all Florida and New Jersey. It's very yeah. unifying. Exactly. And I think that's comforting and also kind of shameful at the same time. <laughs> but you know, exactly. I mean, I'm in California and we're, we're just now starting to kind of open things back up again for like the fifth time because we mm -hmm. figured out the first four times that we weren't ready yet. And I guess we're ready now, even though we're probably not. But anyway, that, that is what it is. I mean, one of the things that, of course, you're very, you're a big mental health advocate. That's a lot of people know you is that you're on CNN and all kinds of stuff. Now, like I said, the whole Ted talk thing, how was this past year reflected a lot of the things that you've been up to the past few years. I think people are starting to become more aware of their mental health now more than ever that they're uh, stuck at home with people that they call family, but often end up fighting with. And a, a lot of those hidden issues kind of come to the surface when you're locked behind uh, four walls constantly. Yeah. I've always been the, uh, like, I feel like the boy who cried wolf. Like I'm always yelling, like mental health is important. Mental health is important for like a decade. And everyone just, kind of like yeah yeah it's you know it's important for for other people or people living with a diagnosis or it's important for my coworkers, but i'm fine and then i think this year there's actually a line in my ted talk where at the end of my talk i'm like i bet that everyone in this room is thinking that this talk is about somebody else and it's not it's like about the people in this room and i feel that this year um what i'm seeing is people having less ammo to defend themselves against the idea that they need to take care of their own mental health. Like before you could say, yeah, well, you know, I have insert coping mechanism or I'm always feeling blank. And now I think people are like, oh crap, I either have to take care of my own brain or this year is going to be even more difficult. So I am praying that that trend continues and that people stop excluding themselves from the mental health conversation because all they're doing is hurting themselves. They're not hurting anyone else but themselves when they do that. Well, not only themselves, but also the people that they, they live with, their family, yeah. their relationships. I mean, especially now because we're stuck around each other all the time. Like 
I listened to uh, your TED talk again for a refresher last night when I was at work. And I remember you had mentioned not only just the line that you had just, uh, you just brought up, but you also said something to the effect of if you have a brain, you're involved in this conversation. The same way yeah. physical fitness applies to anyone, regardless if you're the, uh, the rock, as you put it, or an MMA fighter or someone who is looked at on the outside as being, you know, they have their, they have their stuff together. They're put together. They're, they're motivated behind a lot of those motivations and what masks a lot of those motivations is things like insecurities and things like anxiety and all kinds of different stuff like that. Yeah. I, you know what? I'll give a pass to anyone who's listening right now. Um, you don't have to consider yourself or your own mental health. If you don't have a brain, <laughs> then, then you can just sort of bow out and do your own thing. Um, and I will, I will allow that absence, but anyone else, uh, who does have a brain, I think that you're, you're just as much of a part of this conversation as I am. And you don't have to have diagnoses. You don't have to have experienced something that you can identify as uh, trauma or abuse or addiction or bipolar or whatever. You don't have to ex have experienced any of that to, to sit at the same table and have this talk. And I think a lot of that can come down to awareness, can't it? I mean, there's a lot of things people deal with. I mean, like me, myself, I've had a lot of uh, anxiety issues and issues with uh, depression. I actually was just recently actually officially diagnosed with something. I'd known I'd lived with it for a while, but despite the fact that it was diagnosed or not, it was still there. But even if it's there and you don't have the words to, to put or put the label on it, because there is a lot of shame even though one thing I think I'm very proud of for our generation is we're doing a lot of work to kind of get rid of those stigmas. You know, people like you and a lot of the, uh, there's a big emphasis on education now. So the, the school system, I think, is helping a lot in eradicating a lot of those uh, negative stigmas that we've had for years. Yeah, I was just thinking the other day about how, um, so I was trying to do some math for uh, Cope Notes, like money stuff. And I was trying that sounds to hard. Out, like, how many months can we, you know, purchase this web app software to, you know, I was just trying to do a timeline. I was like, okay, let me do this equation. I did an equation on a whiteboard and I was like, wow, this is the first time I've used algebra <laughs> since school. And I had to learn algebra and I never learned crap about mental health. And I would have had to use that. If I learned it in school, I would have had to use it every single day. But I was like, wow, I'm 28 years old and I only now am using algebra to solve for X. And it's like, wow, our freaking priorities in the school system are so backwards. So I love hearing that um, mental health awareness is being um, integrated into schools more and more. I'm working with some local school districts on exactly that right now and I'm pumped on it. That's awesome. I mean, I think you can kind of summarize that up in that a lot of the issues with the school system can be boiled down to they teach you how to do things humans do, but not how to effectively be a human, not how to wake up and deal with the things that uh, the crap that we pick up as we're going and going to work and doing this assignment and doing that assignment. And, you know, socially, there's a lot of different aspects to humanity that you can't learn, or at least we're not being, we're not making enough of initiative to teach life experience and how to handle emotions, how to handle our interactions with other people. Now, things like that are just as important as learning how to do algebra, perhaps even more so. Like you said, those are, those are skills you're going to have to know how to do and work with on a daily basis.
Dude, it's funny. Like right now we think like, oh, that sounds like such a hippy dippy school. Like who would, you know, who needs to learn about their emotions and their feelings and their health at school? You should be learning math and science. And then I think like in 50 years, people are, you know, my kids are going to be like, you're saying they didn't teach you mental and emotional health in school? Didn't you have to take a science class? That wasn't part of the science class? I'm like, no, I, I know. Isn't that crazy? Like 50 years ago, this wasn't a part of education. We think, it, we think it sounds wild now, but I think a few decades from now, we will be dumbfounded that it wasn't integrated in all education systems from day one. Most definitely. I mean, you see that with like uh, gender study things and uh, issues with feminism and all kinds of different uh, things that were considered taboo are now being like, you can actually get a degree in gender studies and become a professor or doctor in, in gender studies and things like that. The taboos of yesterday are now just the everyday experiences of today. But that's the thing, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, equal rights and a lot of the stuff that's been going down over the past couple months. All, all those issues have still been there. I mean, we, we've been dealing with these issues for basically as long as human beings have been a thing. But we've been repressing them for so long and we, we just haven't really found the ability to be open with them, whether for survival purposes or the ego or what, whatever the actual issue is. These have been issues forever. It's only now that we have the technology that we have, that we're becoming more open, that we're actually starting to analyze these things and get like, figure out what's actually underneath them. I think with that, I can say one of the things, uh, messages I got from you and a lot of the work that you've done, uh, again, the, the music career that you've had and interviews and cope notes and all that, therapy and things like that and really just being open with your emotions and learning how to process them is so integral to living a, a healthy life, not just a happy life, but a healthy life. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on redefining my um, idea of success because a lot of people think it's like, well, success is like, um, you know, you take a helicopter to the rooftop bar of your favorite restaurant and you have, uh, you live in a mansion with all of your wonderful kids who get straight A's and, you know, everyone has their own idea of success. And I think rarely do we include the idea of being um, healthily, you know, well-adjusted, like mentally and emotionally healthy and treating our loved ones with uh, respect and handling our problems responsibly. Like very rarely, if you told someone like, what's your idea of success? Would they say like, you know, when something bad happens, I want to respond very maturely and I want it not to wreck me. I, I want to know exactly what coping mechanisms to turn to. And I want to feel healthy and at peace, regardless of circumstance. Most people would be like, no, I'd rather have a jet ski, you know? And sometimes I'd rather have a jet ski, but most of the time I would rather be well-adjusted. We just don't consider that to be a component of success. And I think we should. Well, the jet ski is, you know, and the rooftop bar and ho however nice those things are, what you'll find is that it's essentially the same kind of dependency that someone can put on a drug of some kind. You know, you're, you're riding out in the jet ski, you're having a great time, but that doesn't solve anything. You're still going to get back to the shore and be the same wreck with the same negative coping mechanisms, with the same bad habits. Like you're still going to have a lot of these same issues. Uh, you just, you know, can say you have a jet ski, which I guess is better. But, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you still have to figure out what works for you and what is what is healthy 
Uh, that, that definition of success I think you brought up is, is really fascinating. I've been I'm a big religious studies guy. I love to get into it. That's honestly what a lot of this, uh, this work is. And I was working and kind of being taught under some uh, monks like local to me uh, from China. And they were t- teaching me a lot about their spiritual processes and how they view things like materialism and just how, how we mess it up so much as Americans, which again, I, I know is a different perspective, but just mm-hmm. the way that they, they view things and value things and the, uh, the way that they value them. Very fascinating. Things like success means something entirely different to them than they do to, uh, to us. We want to conquer everything. We want to be victorious at everything, you know? Yeah. I've, I've been reading a lot about, um, the limitations of materialism and how, um, how I've always thought growing up that the more money I had, the happier I would be. So if I could have, uh, a job where I get paid a hundred thousand dollars a year. And then I got offered a job where I could get paid $200,000 a year. I'd be like, heck yeah, no matter what it takes, I will take the more expensive job or the, the better paying job because that's what will make me happier. But I strongly encourage anyone listening to look into the psychology behind happiness and peace. And I know you've probably read about this, but um, there's that like, concept of the hedonic treadmill where you're like constantly experiencing diminishing returns on the things that bring you joy immediately so let's say you know right here on my desk i have a lamborghini aventador svj model and it is beautiful it's a spider drop top bright green and it's like a 124th scale uh die cast model that my sister bought me for my birthday and i would love to have a Lamborghini Aventador SVJ. That is what I want. But that over time, you'd start to think, oh, it's just my car. I'm going to get in my car and go to Publix or something. And what's interesting is materialism, you, con- you will undoubtedly experience diminishing returns. But in terms of um, peace, like inner peace and joy and gratitude, those are the things that actually have compounding returns. So the more grateful you are, the more you enjoy the things you have. So we think that more things are going to make us happier. And I need help breaking that pattern all the time. But the truth is more things will gradually make you enjoy them less, but more peace and more joy and more gratitude will actually make you enjoy the things that you do have more. It's so backwards. I was just reminded of an interview that George Carlin did about the whole treadmill thing. It, it applied to him in the talk that he had with Chris Rock about, he was talking about drugs. He was saying back in the seventies, you know, you take things like uh, LSD or the drugs that we were doing and people get hooked on them because eventually it's like the, the law of diminishing returns. Like it's, it's great at first, but eventually it becomes a hindrance on you and it gets worse and worse and you have to do more and more. It sort of works the same way with money. It's this, uh, this fetization that we have with these things. It's, more of this, more of this, the more I have, the better it will be. When in fact, I think we can all demonstrate that, you know, if you go to In-N-Out a thousand times a day, I know you in Florida, not quite, but if you go to In-N-Out every day for a week, you're not going to appreciate it as much as if you go once a week or once a month or or whatever it is. The less that you have of something and the more grateful you are once you have it, those are the experiences we wish we could have every time we get out on the jet ski or every time you take that Lamborghini out to Publix. But at the end of the day, the, the ultimate 
lesson that you learn from those things is that if I have this every day, even though I want to have it every day, it's going to become like an addiction and it's going to slow me down and hinder me. Yeah. I heard this quote. I have mixed feelings about Kanye West, but he did say (laughs) this quote that I think is right on the nose. He said something along the lines of having money isn't everything. Not having it is. And I think what we're experiencing in America is like a lot of people, potentially people listening, um, have experienced um, a level of financial anxiety to where it is all consuming. So they can't enjoy spending time with their friends. They can't enjoy um, relaxing because they're, they're financially anxious. They're worried about making ends meet and having enough money to pay their bills. Um, so I also just want to clarify quickly that I am not against uh, money. I, I also want to sort of destroy this idea that starving artists make better art. Um, and that bands should be struggling to pay rent because that's what's going to make good music. I think all of that is super toxic. Um, but at the same time, it's not that we all need to be billionaires. I think that if everyone earned a genuine living wage and was actually middle class instead of being it, living in poverty and pretending that we're in middle class, if all of us actually earned that, Um, the level of productivity and the quality of the creative output would be so much higher. So I just want to say money isn't God, um, but don't, don't make it a demon either. You know? Uh, Yeah. It's, it's about finding balance, you know, essentially, I I think with a lot of the, the pandemic, especially um, outline this, I was one of the people who essentially lost their job when a lot of this happened the struggles and I'm thankful enough to be in a position to where that wasn't like a life threatening decision, but there are a lot of people, especially in our side of the world who did experience that, who you got a $1,200 stimulus check six months ago, but that was essentially it. (laughs) I mean, these people like, let alone artists and people with families or whatever, like now they have to take a step away and figure out what to do with themselves because their job required them to be at a place every day for eight hours a day and now that place is closed and they weren't the ones that got chosen to be there or work from home or whatever you know like it's the pandemic outlined a lot of our societal issues and i think a lot of the unrest i was just talking to a friend of mine here a couple weeks ago he mentioned how a lot of these issues that we had with uh, like wealth disparity um the whole starving artist thing that you just mentioned uh, people working dead-end jobs a lot of these frustrations kind of boiled to the surface mental health too boiled to the surface once a lot of those things that veneer was taken away this year shook up a lot of crap for sure i think it's important though the the worst thing we could do the absolute worst ending to this year is us going well that was weird and then going back to the way we lived before (laughs) we have to address all of the problems that this exposed you know most definitely i think to kind of take it back, because I wanted to ask about the, uh, the happiness component that we were just speaking about a second ago. As a performer, musician, a touring artist, a mental health advocate, what are the things that you do to, like, wh- how would you define your own personal sense of happiness? What do you find it in doing? And how are you able to cope with that now? And has the uh, pandemic at all affected that? Well, the pandemic has totally taken a great big dump on everything I love. <laughs> I think a lot of people are in that boat. Like, the the thing that made me happiest before was playing shows if i had to be very binary about it 
I love performing. I love being in a new city every day, hanging out with a bunch of crazy stinky kids and jumping around and like, hey. it's, we all smell bad. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Especially on tour. Um, <laughs> but I miss, I miss that environment so much and it's felt, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of musicians talk about this, but the biggest impact of the um, pandemic so far in terms of my career has way less to do with my career um, and way more to do with my um, sense of utility and identity and purpose. Like I don't play shows cause it's fun and I sure as heck don't play shows cause I make a lot of money or, or cause my band is super big. I play shows cause I love it and it gives me a, a deep sense of pers- purpose and identity and it brings me a lot of joy and um, I play shows cause I can't not right. Like I don't play shows cause I feel like it. I play shows cause if I didn't play shows, I would implode. And what I miss the most is um, the, it's the feeling of being, of doing what I'm on the earth to do. And I enjoy writing music. Um, I enjoy, you know, there are ways to be active in a world like this, but you got to think like 99% of what I do is speaking at events and playing concerts and events and concerts are gone. So I will speak to people through my computer, uh, but it's, it's nowhere near the same. And I think the, the biggest damage isn't that my career is stalled because so is everybody's. Um, I think the biggest damage is it kind of brings about this existential concern around whether or not I will get to do what I was put on the planet to do. And that's much deeper than having a tour canceled, you know? Oh man. Like it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly the reason why, like I started this up again is I took a hiatus from it. And I was kind of just at the, at the time, like around late end of last year, kind of just distracted by other things and wasn't too sure what I wanted to do. But the pandemic and being away from school and losing the job that I was working, it made me realize that like you just put it, playing shows for you isn't just what you do. It's who you are. It's an essential component to what you were put on this earth to do. That's exactly how I felt. And one of the reasons why I came back to this was because now that I don't have those distractions to look at, that thing, the spirit in me is calling to do the thing that I'm meant to do, which is talk to people that I find incredibly fascinating and know that I know have very insightful things to say. This is what the conversations, even though it's happening behind a computer screen, it's admittedly not the best way to do it, but it's what we have to work with. And just becoming aware of that has been so incredibly refreshing, you know, and putting my, getting myself back on the, back on the horse and getting myself motivated to go ahead and do those things. What, again, it boiled that to the surface, you know, you discover just how valuable those things are when they're taken away from you, at least uh, to the extent that they are now won't be this way forever, but it makes you aware of the things that you are, the essential components to what make you up as a human being, playing shows, speaking to audiences, and connecting with people. It's a lot more difficult to do that behind a computer screen, but it's who you are. And uh, I think that's been a theme for just about everyone at this point, musician or uh, otherwise. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that we think of 
um, artistic pursuits as like vocations or hobbies or something. And maybe they are for people. Like, I don't mean to exclude people who, you know, just kind of do something on the side and they enjoy it and it's fun for them, but it's not really their whole life. Um, but for me, it's a lot more of an identity issue. And um, it's also shown me sort of a sobering glimpse into what my life might look like without music. And it's bittersweet because part of me is like, holy crap, I sleep in my own bed every day. I shower, I've showered every day. You know, I eat, if I want food, I just walk to the refrigerator. It's so much different. Like it's, this is the first full summer I've been home in over a decade. And I didn't even know it rained as much in Florida because I'm never here for a whole summer. And it kind of makes you realize, wow, I've missed out on 13 years of life for music. And when the fun part of music isn't there, which is performing and connecting with people in a live setting, you kind of wonder like, holy crap, did I really give half of my life to something that I might not ever be able to do again? Or if I am able to do it, it might be in a different setting. It is super trippy. Certainly sounds like it. I mean, you've been out on the road for 13 years, as you put it, and just away from home for, for so long. But one thing I have heard from like, musicians that I've spoken to before is that that concept of home kind of changing a little bit because you're constantly on the road, constantly going around and seeing things. And although I don't have that experience, but um, the concept of home is kind of skewed a little bit because your, your home is a tour bus. Your home isn't uh, always equipped with a shower or food or stuff like that. You're, you're constantly moving, constantly on the run. Is that your concept of home? Are you kind of rediscovering that being in Florida for the first time in so long? Yeah, I, I genuinely haven't felt like I live in Florida for the <laughs> longest time. I was like, yeah, well, I, I stay in Florida for, for a few months at a time, but I haven't really felt like a resident of the state. And I got to be honest, there is something kind of nice about being in one place. I think um, I still have a desire for the constant change of tour, but I can see, I would totally understand if, if of all the musicians who have to take this year off, if half of them never come back, because you got to think when some of these guys, you know, they're torn in bands and they're, they're making playing for pennies and then they are home for a year and they live with their girlfriend and they make 15 bucks an hour at, at a fulfillment center or something. And they're brushing their teeth every day and get to relax and, you know, all of a sudden it's like, why the heck would I go live in a van for nothing when I'm earning the, for the first time in my life, I'm earning a fair wage. I'm seeing the people I love. I actually have a stable home base. Like I could see a lot of musicians quitting music because of this. Cause before this, none of us really were home long enough to question whether or not touring was the smartest thing for us. I can definitely see that. I mean, I just listened to an interview that Nurgle from Behemoth did, and he was kind of expressing the same thing. He's like, it's it's always go, 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 and you don't really have a second to reflect on whether you should be going anymore, but you just you just got to do it. You get back, and there's already another tour scheduled, and you got to get ready, and the time that you're home is spent preparing for when you're going to leave again. So yep. it's, yeah, you're not totally ever settled. I think with that, 
how was your home like how would you describe or what was home to you while you were away from home when you were touring all the time what did the concept of home look like to you um when my dog was alive years ago this was like she passed away like three or four years ago um but before that was a big component of it it was like seeing my dog i i was looking through my uh hard drive that i had with a bunch of old photos and um i saw so many videos of my dog and i was like why the heck i was looking through my photos and videos and all it was was like a bunch of photos and videos of my dog and then a bunch of photos and videos from tour and nothing else there was like nothing else and I was trying to figure out why I pretty much only had photos and videos of those two things. It was like, what, do I just go hang with my dog and then tour and then go hang with my dog and then tour? And then uh, a tour mate of mine reminded me that I would sit in the van and watch videos of my dog. And I think home was watching videos of my dog and remembering what it was like because I've never really had a great like super stable home environment so I think my dog kind of represented that to me but on tour the the only things that I really related to home were like showers and food and sleeping so <laughs> on tour if I could shower somewhere and eat a meal and then sleep eight hours that was home enough for me it's weird to think about like i'm i'm you don't often get to think about home if you don't have a healthy home environment and now i'm having to build one only i'm older now and you've had 13 years to uh, watch videos of your dog and kind of sit back and consider a lot of those things. I mean, I can level with you on losing a dog. I just lost one. Uh, I had a German shepherd for 11, almost 12 years and he just passed away like last month. And that mm -hmm. can be, yeah, that can be super tough. But, you know, speaking as someone who does have a home that I'm accustomed to, I have a couple of friends of mine in the, uh, the military and one of them is actually home right now. It's the first time he's been here in almost a year. And then the other one just had a son and he was just down here like a month ago uh, visiting with uh, his wife who he is away from. And he's kind of getting the same, essentially saying the same things that you're saying as a touring musician, someone who's always up and moving around. I was speaking with the, my friend who's here right now a couple nights ago, we went on a hike and uh, he was saying the same thing. He's like, now that I'm here, it's like I've, I never left basically. And now that I'm here, I'm surrounded by the people who have been around for most of my life, except for the past couple of years. It's like, it's, it feels like a breath of fresh air. The way that he put it, it's like the room that I'm living my life in now has air that I can actually breathe again, instead of just sitting in a place on the other side of a country away from everybody that I love and care about. He's like, now that I'm actually here, I feel connected. I feel alive again. And I think we're seeing that a lot with, uh, like you were saying, people who have been on the road constantly their whole lives. Yeah. Home is definitely people. I think that's kind of the unifying theme here. It's like, if you, you know, rewind five years. And if you said, you know, you have to be in Kansas city, Missouri for two months in between tours, but your dog will be there. I'll be like, okay, <laughs> that's home enough for me. And like, I, I'm learning now that I don't home. Isn't really a place. It's more of a, um, this is going to sound so hippy dippy, but it's a feeling 
And that feeling is rarely something that you can generate on your own. Typically it's, it's from um, interpersonal communication, which is probably why tour felt like home for me for so long, because I'm with people that I love. I'm with my band and our tour mates and a bunch of fans. And it feels so wholesome and awesome that that feels like home. Oh, you you acting like feelings are important or something now? That's strange. Well, I mean, I don't quote me as saying that. Everyone knows my stance on feelings. We don't have them. Real men don't have feelings. Yeah. Real men don't have feelings. Real <laughs> men have real men have abs and can bench press at least three fifty. That's, oh, that's dude, what I've been told. I cannot get abs for the life of me. I've tried <laughs> everything. It's just not in my biology. Yeah, I'm up at. A, I'm working at a warehouse right now, and I'm walking upwards of 10 miles every time that I'm there and I'm pulling pallets and pushing stuff around. I'm like, I weigh the least right now than I ever have in my whole life. And I still, no, it's not in my DNA either. There's always going to be a layer of something. I, I feel that abs are a conspiracy theory and we can do a whole separate podcast about this, but I'm fairly sure I've never seen abs um, on a person before. I've never felt abs on a person before. I, I have a sinking suspicion that maybe this was like propagated by the state, you know? I, I hear footsteps down the hall. I think Joe Rogan's about to come kick my door in. <laughs> but um, I, I do. I agree. I, I think uh, that was a conspiracy cooked up by the, the government. It's the same, the same <laughs> water that we're drinking, the same one that's making the frogs gay. It's what's oh, causing yeah. us not to have any abs. I totally agree <laughs> with you on that. Because we don't have abs, we're not men. So that's all right. That's fine. I'll accept that basis. Oh, man. I think uh, you mentioned coping mechanisms a second ago, and they got me thinking. Like, a lot of the different things that people have been doing while, that we're, while the, you know, we're stuck at home, uh, like lifting weights, then you have the complete opposite end of that spectrum, which is the people who are abusing things and discovering addictions and all these other problems that are kind of kicking up. bunch of jokes about them all over social media, but I am wondering if that's going to be like a legitimate issue, like all of these habits that we're building up. Just like always. I mean, you're the sum of your habits essentially at all times, but what we're doing now is going to, we're not going to live the same like lives once this is all over, like you were saying, but it's going to be very fascinating to see what kind of habits that people were building up. And I think you're going to see a pretty, pretty uh, interesting split there. It's, it's a matter of removing coping mechanisms and seeing what happens. So this year removed Let's see. Some of my favorite coping mechanisms were um, going to church. Uh, my church is closed. I played basketball and went to the gym. Can't do either of those things. Um, I obviously played concerts <laughs> and I can't do that. And if I really go down the list, I realize I'm, I was robbed of every single coping mechanism that I had. And what happens when your coping mechanisms are stripped from you? You have to replace them. There is no option. Anyone who's listening to this right now who thinks that they don't have coping mechanisms, it's just not the truth. You might not be identifying them as coping mechanisms, but um, they exist. And I am fairly certain that we are going to see a split, like you said, where some people um, had to really, really try to replace those coping mechanisms with something healthy. Like for me, I started going back to therapy and I had been out of therapy for several years. But when I saw my go-to coping mechanisms being stripped from my life, I'm like, I need to be proactive. 
I can't let this result in a relapse for me. I have to take care of myself. And all the while I'm combating the urge to lay around and do nothing or eat a, a gallon of ice cream and not talk to anybody for three months. Like it's really challenging, but we all have to replace those coping mechanisms with something. And I just encourage people to identify what those coping mechanisms are and then try to personally evaluate whether you think those are a net net gain or a net loss for them. I think that's a, another kind of overarching theme about everything that we've spoken about. I think awareness is really integral to growth. You, you have to be aware of the issue, of course, that you're dealing with in order to take steps to uh, solve it. Speaking on the therapy thing, I actually did the same. I started going to therapy for the first time in my life. I never had before, wow. uh, just, just a couple months ago. And it was just a very, I think you put it in your TED talk too. You talked about those micro steps that don't even feel like steps that ultimately lead to a bigger change. Those negative habits that I had, I knew I had them for the first time in my life. I was able to sit back and be like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I should be doing that. I don't, th <laughs> yeah, I don't think I should be doing these number of things that are not just part or a result of my negative mental health, but are not they're actually propagating it now they're making it worse mm. and again awareness is huge you have to be aware of the fact that if you don't replace these coping mechanisms i don't think we realize just how integral they are to our lives because essentially everything we do can be looked at as a coping mechanism in some way or another exactly that's what i'm i'm always shouting that like you know, for me, a lot of people ask me about self-care stuff. They're like, well, what, what counts as self-care? What's a good self-care thing? And it's like, bro, self-care for me some days is, is connecting with a lot of old friends on social media and like going back through photos that we have together and like commenting on their stuff and sending them messages and tagging them in old photos. And, and other days it looks like, like today, for example, I'm doing a social media fast. Um, and some days I watch videos of, uh, I'm a big fan of supercars and exotic cars. So I'll watch a bunch of videos of um, these walkthroughs and breakdowns of the specs of these beautiful exotics. And then other days I'll, I'll go to a car show. Other days I will go for a bike ride. And people think like, no, I'm talking self-care, like using a, doing like a face mask or something. Or like getting a pedicure. And it's like, no, self-care is literally anything that you do when you are left to your own devices. That is self-care. And people don't realize that self-care can be anything and is anything. The important part, like you said, is awareness. Identifying like, is this helping me feel better? If so, is this something that I can healthily replicate on a regular basis? Well, it's... Uh... It's things like wearing a face mask, going on a bike ride or going on a hike, social media fast, which is funny. I reached out to you on social media this morning. Ha ha. But yeah, that's uh, why I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I figured that out pretty quick. But um, self-care, the term is breaking down stigmas. The term self-care sounds innately positive, like it's something good that you can do. But then there are people who, literally speaking, just according to the definition, uh, getting home from work and getting plastered or hanging out with their friends and getting plastered or getting ridiculously high or making mistakes or doing things that are not on the outside care but they're a response to like you put it this is what you do with the time that you have when you're left to your own devices 
the choices that you make in those moments are what are going to influence your mental health, your physical health, uh, your relationships, every aspect of your life moving forward is what you do when you're left to your own devices. Dude, people, I, people don't often ask themselves this question, but I think they should. Um, what makes me feel alive? And I got to be honest, I went to a classic car show recently and it was all of these old, um, like 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, American muscle cars and a few exotics. Um, and it was stunning looking at these things. It was like, they're, they're resto mods. So they would like replace all these things and clean them up and make them look brand new. And I was beaming like ear to ear. I was so overcome with joy and I'm not even joking for like two hours. It was, it was this big outdoor thing and everything was super spread out. So it complied with all of the standards and stuff. Um, but for, for two hours, I wasn't thinking about work. I wasn't stressed about finances. I wasn't thinking about how the music industry is shut down. I wasn't thinking about how I can't see my friends and family and how I can't travel. And, you know, I was just present. And I think in that moment, I was like, oh, this is what feeling alive is. It's just being present. Like imagine riding your bike and not thinking in the back of your head about some mistake that you made. That's feeling alive when you can just actually live without your brain being pulled in all of these other directions. When you can just sit there and be a human instead of thinking about doing the things that humans are supposed to do. <laughs> like that's, oh man, that's great. I love that. That's, that's a fantastic way to put that. I, I think uh, one of the things that, again, and they've been kind of booming for a while, but the kind of the, the, the self-motivation type uh, industry with uh, like a lot of meditation apps are being launched, like Sam Harris's stuff. Uh, Eastern philosophy is kind of seeing a revival and the emphasis on things like meditation and stuff like that are really beginning to pick up. They're really beginning to pick up at least here in the West uh, in a way that I don't think historically has ever been seen before. You know, like a lot of the meditation, like gobbledygook that people used to throw around in like the sixties and the seventies was seen as that was seen as, Oh, that's, 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 uh, that's that weird occult stuff. We, we, we're Americans. We don't deal with stuff like that. Oh, we're Christians. We don't do things like that. And now, we're starting to see just how they strip away the Buddhist label, strip away the Hinduism or whatever, strip those labels away. And you're left with something that humans should be able to do. And I think because it seems so scary, you know, you're like, what am I, if I'm not being distracted by all these different things, what am I, if I'm not a musician, what am I, if I'm not a writer, what am I, if I... when you're left with just you and you have moments of clarity where you're just, I'm just looking at awesome cars right now. Wow. That one. I love that color. I don't know anything about cars. So I can't give specs or anything, but <laughs> like when you're left in those moments and you're just existing as a person, those are the moments, the, the most, those are the most honest moments that you can reflect on. And like, like you said, this is what being alive really is. It's not a matter of doing paperwork. It's not doing this or doing that or working here or working there, or driving this car. It's just, I'm here right now. That's it. I'm here right now very great way to put it i think uh, one of the things i think we can end off on it's a question that i love to bring up and ask people because it's kind of the theme of this whole like the whole brand that i have beyond the well it's a reference to uh Mimer's well in norse mythology and basically the whole theme is sacrificing something to obtain knowledge to obtain insight and truth and i think if you can look at the work that you've done with uh, cope notes and with prison 
and all kinds of different things. You've sacrificed a lot to gain the knowledge that you have uh, with uh, mental health and self-care and all these different things. If you had to sit back and think about how would you answer that question? What have you sacrificed to gain the insight and the knowledge that you have now? You're asking what I have sacrificed or what would I sacrifice? You choose. I think both of them are both important questions to ask too. Um, I think what I have sacrificed is everything. And that sounds dramatic um, to people who don't know me. Um, but if you really take a look at my life and what I have experienced and been through, it is astonishing that I am not in jail or dead. Um, so I think I had to trade just about everything, um, every safety, every comfort, every dream. Um, <laughs> I traded all stability um, for where I am now. And to be honest, I think the, the question, what would I have given um, the answer is less than I have given, which is crazy. Like, let me try to phrase that in a way that makes sense. If you asked me, what would you give to learn what you've learned? I wouldn't offer up even 10% of what I've had to pay because nobody wants to pay that, <laughs> you know? Like, it's like saying to someone, you know, if I chop off your arm, um, are you cool if I give you a football scholarship? And you're like, no, what the heck? Like, I want that arm. That's super not worth it. Um, but then on the other side of it, let's say there's uh, someone who lost their arm in an accident and then they go on to have a football scholarship and it changes the whole course of their life and they meet their wife who's a cheerleader and they have a family and then he becomes a coach and he has a great big long career doing what he loves and he's, he will say, oh, it was worth the arm, you know? So I think the timeline is important to keep in mind. Like you never want to have to give stuff up. That's kind of part of life. You want to like hoard all of the good things and make sure that nobody takes them from you. But the fact is that you will lose things. You will feel disappointment. Uh, people will let you down. Um, you will experience great loss and tragedy and suffering in your life. Um, but one day you will look back at it and say, while I'm not particularly happy that it went exactly the way it did, and while I wish it didn't hurt quite as much, and while I wish I could have enjoyed more comforts and conveniences than I did, looking back, I know that I would be a completely different person if it, all, if, if it didn't happen exactly the way it did. So I don't know if that made sense, but I would say that if you asked me before, you know, would you be willing to endure um, rape to experience this level of understanding about your life? I'd say, heck no, absolutely not. There's no way, there's nothing that could be worth that. But looking back and seeing how my experiences have informed my advocacy, I know that there was sort of a, I could leverage that tragedy for a greater good. So I don't know if that made sense, but it's a lot more complex than just saying, yeah, it was worth it or no, it wasn't worth it, you know? Well, I think even like you use the metaphor with the, uh, are you willing to give up your arm for a football scholarship? I, I think the interesting twist on that is, well, what if in taking that football scholarship and gaining all those things and gaining the success, you in the process suffered a career ending injury in which you lose your arm? The mm -hmm. timeline is incredibly important because a lot of the things that you end <laughs> up sacrificing are things that you wouldn't have 
even considered you would sacrifice, but that's part of the bargain and that's part of the path that you choose. And that's, those are things that you learn along the way and things that you pick up and discover along the way. It's like, I wouldn't have been willing to give up my arm, but in doing so and taking this path, I did lose my arm and I wouldn't be who I am right now without that stupid arm. You know, that arm can go ahead and leave me because I am now what I am. Would I do it again? Probably not. Not if I had to choose, but the choice was never really yours to make. The things that, uh, yeah. That's the distinction that I want listeners to take home is that very rarely will will someone come up to you and say, do you want to trade this for that? It's going to be a moment by moment, touch and go decision of your priorities. And if you work on um, trying to help those around you, and trying to get healthier as a person and take care of yourself and take care of the people you love. Um, I will be astounded if you are upset with the person you've become at the end. You might be upset with your circumstances. Um, you might be upset with how things shook out, but I doubt that you will look at yourself and think, wow, I am so disappointed with who I've become. And that's the piece that you take with you. You can't take any of this with you. Um, but you can make an impact on people that will last longer than you. And I don't know where humanity got lost on that and started focusing on other stuff, but that's really all that's going to matter. Exactly. The, imp- the impact that you have on others, the impact that you have on yourself and your story tells that for you. And it's going to outlast you a lot more. Who you are now is the story that people are going to tell when you're long gone. And that's really what your legacy is. That's, that's, that's the, what you're going to leave behind essentially. And I think that was an incredibly poetic way to close out this fantastic conversation. Like I'd mentioned to you earlier, I'm so glad to have you on again. It's always a pleasure talking to you, your insight. I really clicked with it. Like the moment I saw you in prison live for the first time uh, a couple of years ago, it was, I knew that there was something special there and I very much look forward to seeing you get back on the road and do whatever it is you choose to do. Maybe you'll end up being like a car dealer or something. You'll be this guy racing around and, whatever it is that you're going to be end up doing next year. But I look forward to seeing whatever it is that you end up doing. I appreciate it. Do I have permission for shameless plugs real quick? I was just about to ask you. <laughs> Heck yes. Okay. So if you've listened this far, uh, kudos, um, quick, easy ways to find me. If you go to copenotes.com, um, there's a contact form. If you need to get in touch with me or anyone on our team, if you don't know what Cope Notes does, we provide daily mental health support via text message, and I would love for you to try it. Um, I sing in a band called Prison. We are on Spotify and Apple Music and YouTube and all of that stuff. And then um, my name is Johnny Crowder, so you could probably find me on Facebook. Um, I don't believe in Twitter, so I don't have one of those. And then um, Instagram, if you look up at Johnny Crowder Loves You, you should be able to find me. I don't believe in Twitter either. I'm glad we can level on that too. Oh crap. <laughs> I totally forgot to mention. I host a podcast. It's called the Cope Notes Podcast. So that too. Like, yeah, that's important. If you like podcasts, um, you can look up the Cope Notes Podcast. It's everywhere you find podcasts. And we interview people about um, how they cope with press or stress and pressure and frustration and doubt and anxiety and guilt and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we interview a lot of musicians and uh nannies and barbers and pastors and all types of weird folks so if you are in a listening mood look us up as an avid listener of the cope notes podcast i can 100 percent back that up definitely check it out and uh, again thank you so much for being on here and talking with me again it's always a great time always a pleasure
Thanks for having me, brother, for real. Always, of course.